when he has gone to the cross to rescue and save us, nothing can separate us uh, from that love because of uh, the eternal work that he's done on our behalf. So uh, a real blessing to be able to sing that and uh, to believe that. If you're here for the first time, we are so glad you've come to uh, fellowship with us today and to be a part of the Exchange Church here. We're here to uh, glorify Christ throughout the greater Shepparton region, to uh, make disciples and grow strong disciples who love and serve Christ and enjoy him. That's a great aspect of, um, of our Christian faith, uh, that we get to enjoy the living eternal God who has uh, given us new life in himself because of his death at the cross. So glad you're here. Glad you're here with us today. Um, we are still going through our sermon series. Uh, what does that mean? We'll be picking uh, selective passages as people have um, come to me and sort of asked me that question, what does that mean? And uh, today we're going to look at a passage uh, in Revelations uh, chapter 4. But to go in line with that, um, sometimes Hollywood from time to time has had a fascination with the uh, end of the world. Some of their movies have come out like that. I remember there was one, I think Arnie Schwarzenegger was in uh, Judgment Day, When the World Ends. I didn't get to see that film, but I did see the shorts of that. Uh, It was one of them. Another one was Armageddon, um, the final battle or the battle to end all battles. There was another one that Hollywood produced, sort of talking about this thought of the end of the world. Uh, And one film that I did see was called After Earth. It's like when the earth was no longer inhabitable. Uh, Somehow we'd um, made this environmental catastrophe of earth and then we couldn't do it. That was again, was sort of looking somewhat at the end of the world. I think some people do have a sense here of where where will this all end? Where will this all end in a sense of end time thinking? And I'm glad people think like that because the Bible does say it will end one day. It will end one day. So have a look with me as we uh, look in Revelation chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's not overly long, but we'll read that together. So let's go to verse 1 and then uh, we'll start from there. Verse 1. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald and around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wing, wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you now that we can come and open up this uh, incredible chapter here in the book of Revelations, chapter 4. We pray, Holy Spirit, come and uh, give me the power to uh, carefully and as best as I can faithfully open this word up. And I pray also give us ears to hear and hearts to receive so that we would see a glorious picture here of the God who sits on the throne, the throne of power and the throne of holiness, who rules majestically, Lord, despite what we may see happening around about us, you sit on the throne. So, Father, help us to see that today, we pray, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I must have prayed too long because my iPad's gone to sleep. There we are, back on again. Uh, the book of Revelation, I once heard by a speaker, is uh, was called a book of majesty, mystery, and misery. Uh, it's the majesty of God. It's the mysterious nature of its writings, and it's also the misery of final destruction for all those who've rejected Jesus Christ. Uh, There is a fascination with humanity, as it were, and and the end of the world. Uh, Even from an environmental outlook, people believe that we will be environmentally unsustainable at some point in time. Somehow we will either bake, cook or fry this world out of existence. There'll be nothing left. We won't be able to sustain ourselves. We'll have decimated the planet so badly... That will mean the end of human existence. Uh, Let's be clear here. The Bible does say that the world will come to an end, but it won't be by environmental causes. The God, the ruler of all things, will bring down the curtain of time at some point in the future at his choosing and not when the polar ice caps thaw out or global warming seems to take over. Um, Not saying those things aren't happening, but God is the one who's in control and he determines what happens and what takes place. The book of Revelation certainly has a lot to say about the end of time. Having said that, though, it's a challenging book to read. It's difficult in many respects to get our head around. It uses all this imagery and symbolism that we really aren't used to in our culture as we read through this book. Because of this, we sort of see these animals and creatures and numbers, and we can read far more into Revelation than what's actually there in the first place. Um, Many people, many people down through the ages have totally got uh, this final book in the Bible wrong as they've read it and perhaps applied it to their lives. And this has actually caused disastrous results. If you're a bit of a history buff, you've only got to go back about, uh, we're talking about 28 years, 25 years. Uh, A man by the name of uh, David Koresh uh, from Waco, Texas. Uh, led a large group of people into a compound, as it were, preparing for the end of the world, mainly because um, he had misunderstood the book of Revelation. The local authorities came out to this compound to investigate a murder that had taken place out there, and the followers took it to be the forces of the Antichrist, as it were, coming against them, and they sort of fought a quick battle with those uh, FBI agents at that time. Uh, They withdrew, the agents withdrew, And they sort of held out a siege to sort of get these people to finally come out of this building. They weren't coming out because as far as they were concerned, their reading of the book of Revelation, it was the end of the world. And these people out there who were building this siege were the forces of the Antichrist. Finally, as the FBI tried to forcibly go in and get these people out, uh, the sect members set the building alight and nearly 100 people died from that. And all that stemmed from a distorted reading of the book of Revelation. 
There's been countless predictions also of the return of Jesus Christ by other religious cults and sects built around the book of Revelation. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses cult is a classic for this. At least 10 times they've predicted the return of Christ. And guess what? 10 times it failed. All because of their faulty reading of the book of Revelation. There's also been many other cults and sects right throughout the centuries that have foretold the end of the world as well because of the reading of the book of Revelation. And you can get onto websites and you can go onto YouTube and you can see all sorts of fascinating predictions and explanations here for this book of Revelation. The mystery still surrounds this book today, even as we would read through it. Having said that, though, I'm totally convinced, totally convinced that the Holy Spirit never inspired Revelation, the book of Revelations, to be such a confusing and far-fetched book as some people make it out to be. I don't think that was the intention at all. I think the intention of the book of Revelation was for us to see a glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And it's here to grow our faith in Christ and his sacrifice at the cross for us in our salvation. And I also believe the book of Revelation is here to propel us into gospel mission as we do see the final state of mankind as it's revealed to us through the book of Revelation as well. Having said that, the context of a book is always critical so that we can understand better why the Apostle John has written this book inspired by the Holy Spirit. We need to see what's going on here. Why is this written? The background is the Apostle John has been expelled to the island of Patmos because of his witness for the gospel. Even in knowing that, it gives us a hint of what's happening in the community at that time. Christianity is being persecuted to the point where leaders like John are being kicked out of town and expelled to isolation on the island of Patmos. Persecution is fairly widespread. A large number of churches are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. This is a common theme right throughout the New Testament and it's exactly here in the book of Revelations as well. Families are being ripped apart by local communities in opposition to Jesus Christ. Men and women and children are being killed simply for being Christians. None other than that, they are being persecuted to the point of being killed. Church communities are suffering big time at this particular moment. Uh, Those remaining are really confused. With so much chaos and evil prevailing around about them, they're running right against Jesus' people, this where they are, and they're asking themselves, is Jesus really in control? Is God in control here? Or is Satan running the world and slowly wiping out all the Christians? These guys, the churches around the book of Revelation, are hard-pressed and their faith is being battered big time. They're getting harassed and pushed, thinking, what is going on here? Jesus is absolutely aware of this, totally aware of this. He knows exactly where his people are at. He knows exactly what they're going through. It doesn't take him by surprise. He knows the pain and the challenge that they're facing. So Jesus comes and reveals himself to John here while he's on Patmos and gives John this revelation, as it were. So that's where we get this book title, Revelation. And the preceding chapters to this, we see a picture there where Jesus is giving this accurate assessment of the churches. Some of the words he says are comforting. Some of the words he says are challenging. And some of the words that Jesus says are quite convicting at the same time. He's calling many of those churches to repent, to turn away from their faithless living to faithful living. And as it were now, as we get to chapter 4, 
uh, Jesus calls John up to this open door, this open door to look into heaven. And he says, come up here. And he does that. So this is where we pick up this chapter here. And what we'll see as we go through is we'll see the symbolism of Revelation. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then we'll talk about the throne of power and the throne of holiness as well. Before we go any further, is everybody feeling a bit hot or not too bad? Because those leaders are working really, really well now. They've done something the last few weeks. I'm just a bit warm up here. But if you are, yell out and we can always switch them off. Symbolism of Revelation. If you really read carefully, uh, much of the imagery in Revelation has a direct connection to the Old Testament. That's a great way to look at that. It's all very symbolic of what's already happened or what's already been written in the Old Testament. If you go further into the book, you see these plagues that come out, these seven plagues. And you can actually look at that and see how it corresponds back to some of the plagues um, in Egypt when the the, uh, exodus of the Israelite people came from Egypt. Revelations also has what we call apocalyptic literature. Now, I'm going to say that word quite a few times today. If I get it wrong, don't laugh, okay? Because sometimes it comes out just not quite the way you want to say it. It's a book made up of prophecy and also these apocalyptic writings. The apocalyptic... There you go. Third time I've got it wrong. The apocalyptic writing was reasonably common back then. And this type of writing would use or would give um, dramatic imagery through the use of numbers and creatures. Through the use of numbers, they would portray these vivid pictures or revelations. And often this would be about the end of the world type stuff in this apocalyptic literature. These apocalyptic writings would carry these number symbols to give it drama to give it sort of life and to sort of open it up. And we see this really, really often through the book of Revelation. And right here in this chapter, we actually see it. In verse 4, we're told there are about 24 thrones with 24 elders gathered around this throne. In verses 6 to 8, we see these four creatures, as we sort of read about there, also around this throne. And in verse 5, we see seven spirits of God. And that was the question that was raised today in what does that mean? Seven spirits of God? I thought there's only one spirit of God. Is there seven or is there one? And this immediately highlights for us the confusion sometimes in reading the book of Revelation. It's this whole idea of numbers and creatures and things like that. The number seven actually is a very common number when writing in apocalyptic ways. Uh, Later in this book, if you read through uh, Revelation, and I would encourage you to do so, you'll see seven scrolls, you'll see seven seals, you'll see seven trumpets, and you'll see seven bowls. It's a common number that's opened up a number of times here through this really interesting book. And here we see it in verse 5, seven spirits of God. This number seven comes up again. So I guess, are we to take this literally? As in there is seven spirits of God? Or are we to understand it in this apocalyptic writing? And even if we don't take this as apocalyptic writing, is there any other way we could answer if there's seven spirits of God? If we didn't know that. So what do we do here? As we think about that challenging question, because we see there seven spirits of God around the throne. The first thing we do is we must trace out through the rest of Scripture and say to ourselves, do I find this anywhere else in the Bible? Do I find this anywhere else in the Scriptures where it talks about the Spirit of God being as in the seven spirits of God? And yes, you will find it. 
But you'll also you'll find that in Revelations in chapter 1, verse 4. But again, we need to see that as a part of the apocalyptic writing here with this number 7. Will you find it anywhere else in the Bible where it refers to the Spirit of God being seven spirits? You can read from Genesis through to Revelation. And will you find it anywhere else? The answer to that is no. You will not find it anywhere else where God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is referred to as seven spirits of God. There's only one Holy Spirit who is a person and who is fully God, part of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One Spirit of God. You see, John's desire here by the Holy Spirit through apocalyptic writing is to give this dramatic image here of the throne of God where the Holy Spirit does dwell in complete unison with God the Father. And this number seven would be clearly understood by John's hearers in that fashion to give it drama, as it were, to actually highlight this. They would see this as a vivid image of the glorious Spirit of God when John talks about it in those numbers. Often through the Bible also, this number seven is like this complete sort of picture, this complete number, God's perfect number as such. So they would see this here as they're reading this with these numbers that this would actually give it uh, oomph, if you, like to, if you like to use that word, to say this is a picture of the perfect Holy Spirit of God here at the throne. If there's one thing I can give you that will be helpful in helping to read the book of Revelation, it will be this. It will be this. When reading the book of Revelation, don't get caught up in the minute detail of numbers, creatures and beasts. Don't get caught up in trying to do all that and trying to get your head around all these numbers and creatures and beasts. Now, as I said, you can go, you can go to uh, the web and YouTube today and you will find a vast array of people who have claimed to have you know, cracked the code of the book of Revelation. You can do a search on YouTube and you'll come up with plenty of um, people who say, I've worked out the book of Revelation and they've got it all worked out. They can tell you exactly what seal we're up to. They can tell you what bowl is going to come next and what sort of antichrist beast is going to come. They'll even perhaps tell you who the antichrist is if you go to some of these sites. And I know myself, years ago, I went to seminars where people did have these sort of things happen. They had these massive big charts up on walls. And they were plotting out the whole timeline about when these things were going to take place. And even back then, uh, they had this idea of who the Antichrist was. And I think one of them back then was Henry Kissinger, which is probably giving away my age now. He was touted to be the Antichrist back in the um, early 70s or something like that. Um, There's lots of people out there doing that. There there was even one I saw where you read about these scorpion-like creatures in the book of Revelation with stingers in their tails... And we were told back then that really they are the modern day helicopter actually with nuclear warheads in them. So, I mean, you can get a lot of different sort of interpretations here out of the book of Revelation. Um, It's just sometimes unfathomable what people can draw out of it. So what I'd say there is don't read too much into numbers, beasts, animals, bowls, seals, scrolls, whatever. It's all a part of this apocalyptic literature that John is using to give drama, to give oomph to this glorious picture here of the end of time. To read Revelations as we think about that and to get a better perspective, to get a better perspective, 
we need to look at the really big picture here of what John is trying to communicate to us through that book. So what is John showing us then in Revelation chapter 4 where he mentions some of these interesting things like numbers and creatures? What is John really trying to show us as we read Revelation chapter 4? Let's remember, John's readers are fearful and they're confused. They're under pain and they're under persecution. So John clearly isn't going to write to them in riddles so that they don't understand what he's writing to them. They understood exactly what he's saying. He was giving them help. He was giving them something that would actually alleviate them from their confusion and their pain and their concern. John's writing to them to help strengthen their faith in this really difficult time that they're facing. How does John do that? Well, let's have a look. In the Spirit, John is given here a picture of the throne of God. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. This is the first part of the big picture that John wants to actually have his hearers see, and he wants us to see today. He wants us to get this picture here of God seated on the throne, one seated on the throne. In the following verses, we see things like colours, rainbows and other thrones around the main throne. But John's focus here isn't for us to go deep into that imagery, but it's to allow that imagery to grow our focus on the throne and more importantly to the one who sits on that throne. That is the focus here as we look at Revelations chapter 4. What does a throne represent if we think about that? When I think about a throne... We naturally think about power, don't we? Someone who sits on a throne holds power. It's a, per, it's a person in a position of authority. It's someone who is a ruler. If we were to think of the Queen of England sitting on her throne, we see a position of power or authority, albeit it's diminished somewhat from where it was um, quite a few decades ago or even a century or so back, but we still recognise here a throne is a position of power or authority. And this is precisely what Jesus shows John, precisely what Jesus shows John. And then John relays this vision onto the churches. The believers are confused about who's in control of this world. It seems like in the believers back then, in their mind, that somehow Satan is using the Romans and even other unbelievers to harass them and to kill them. They're not sure who's on the throne. Maybe, God, you aren't in control, they're thinking back then. Why is so much evil stuff happening Why is there so much turmoil here, Lord, and our brothers and sisters are being killed? What is going on? Have you lost control? Could be what's going through the minds of these uh, people in the churches back then. Jesus is saying here, refresh your hearts in this. I sit on the throne. Jesus says, I sit on the throne. Even though evil is having its day, and it looks like it is, Ultimately, Jesus says, I hold all power and I'm sitting on this throne. This is the vision that Jesus is giving to John and then John's bringing to us. It's a throne room. Jesus is saying, don't lose sight of this. Don't lose this vision of the throne that I sit on and the power that I hold. Don't let the current circumstances, albeit so difficult, blind you to this fact that I am sovereign that I sit on the throne of power, that I hold all authority. And that's precisely what does happen to us at times. When we are feeling overwhelmed by life, we actually lose sight 
of where Jesus is. Jesus was saying, Satan can only do what I allow him to do and no more. Satan isn't in control, Jesus says. I am and I sit on this throne that you see here in Revelations chapter 4. John then goes and paints this picture here of a throne uh, with lightning and thunder. Verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, he's using imagery here, but very much so. This is connected to the Old Testament. If you read back through Exodus 18, 19 and 20, uh, very suggestive here of what happens at Mount Sinai. When the Israelites have uh, taken out of Egypt and they come and they meet God at Mount Sinai, if you read through there, it's a very awe-inspiring picture. The mountain is clothed in smoke and there's lightning and there's thunder and there's shaking and it's like earthquake. And the Israelites have come out, they're getting a sense of the awe and the power of God and they just want to withdraw from this fearsome, awesome God. John here is using some of that Old Testament imagery again to say this is where Jesus is. He sits on this throne of power. He hasn't lost control. He is in control. Get that picture in your minds again, despite what you might see today. He's saying, put your hope and trust in the all-powerful and sovereign God who sits on this throne. Lift up your eyes, John is saying to the churches in around uh, Turkey at that time. Lift up your eyes to see a mighty and majestic God who sits on the throne. He says, you've got to see that in the midst of all this turmoil. John doesn't stop there, though. He he describes the throne even further. He gives us here a picture of this throne of holiness, another picture. Look at it there in uh, verses 6 to 8. And before the throne there there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, very similar to what Ben read out earlier on out of Isaiah. There's that Old Testament imagery sort of come back in again. Uh, Six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, when we read this, we don't absolutely discount the creatures here at all, but we also don't read things into them that really aren't there. You know, sometimes you might think maybe these creatures may represent elements of creation. I don't know. Four aspects there. Again, Revelation is, is this mysterious book. But we're not discounting the creatures here because there's one thing that we can really see clearly about these creatures here as they are around this throne. These creatures are telling us something about God. And you don't want to miss it. What are they crying out? They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what John wants us to see here. Not so much to focus on the creatures, but what are they doing? What are they saying? Because they're telling us something about this God who's all powerful and sits on the throne. God is holy. He's without evil. There is no trace of wrongdoing within God at all. God is pure. 
There's not even a hint of malice or deception with the God who sits upon this throne, who holds all power. He's a God who can do no wrong because this God, the true God, is holy. This is what John's wanting us to see here about God on the throne. And get this, this crying goes on day and night without ceasing. And we probably can't fathom that. It's going on right now. There's this echo of praise. There's this chorus that just continually rolls on in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's happening right now as we gather here today, here in Shepparton. It's like this atmosphere here that is in heaven and where the throne room is. That God dwells in this absolute pure holiness. His personhood, as it were, radiates this holiness. And John wants us to see that as we think about here this throne room. What would that mean then for these suffering believers back then? What would that mean for them as they get this vision, as they see this imagery that that John uses and he writes this apocalyptic writing and they're seeing these numbers and they're seeing these creatures cry out these things? What would they see? What would they think? They would see this. God will not allow evil to go unpunished. He will, as a holy God, come and be just. The God who is holy does suffer long with evil but he's patient because of his patience for them to repent. But God will not persist with evil forever. It will not go on and on and on with God persisting with it. This is why the book of Revelation has been written for us in that sense. Because we see there that one day God will, as it were, pull the plug on this world. It will come to an end. It will not go on unabated. It will not go on unchecked. There is a day coming when all evil will justly be punished by a pure and holy God. One day is coming where God will bring final judgment. Hence we get people thinking about this judgment day. There is a day coming when all evil will be absolutely punished by God and it will be right. The apostles often refer to this through the New Testament. Look what Paul says here in Acts chapter 17 when he's giving this evangelistic talk. He ends with this at the end of this gospel talk. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This was a key part of their gospel proclamation back then was the God of justice. There is a judgment day coming. Hollywood has got it right, but they just haven't got it fully right. Judgment day is absolutely coming. These are the unavoidable facts of the gospel. We cannot sidestep around this. We must see God's judgment actually as good news. Good news that God is just and he will judge. The good news is that God will put to a final end all evil and the pain and suffering that it causes. God will come and he will end it all. Now we don't wish for anyone to go through that judgment. We wish they would come and find Christ as their Lord and Saviour and actually flee from that judgment to come and flee to Christ as their Saviour. We don't wish for anybody to go through it but we must not forget that it is good news that judgment day is coming because then evil will be put to an end And it will no longer be able to reign in this world and cause all of its 
pain and suffering. Final judgment is coming. We are told that this judgment is so fearsome in the book of, in the book of Revelation that people will wish for the mountains, as it were, to fall upon them and hide them from this holy God. But that will not hide them because God is pure and he sees all. There is no hiding from an all-seeing holy God. So this is why Jesus has given John this vision. And this is why the Holy Spirit today uh, is inspiring John to record this revelation for us. Because he wants us to see that we do serve a God who's perfectly holy and a God who rules from a throne of holiness. We may be surrounded by evil. We may be victims of evil acts that have been done to us. And we may have witnessed horrible evil that has taken place to others. But we must be reassured that this will all come to an end one day, no matter where we are in life and what we're experiencing. For both John's hearers then and for us today, Revelation fills us with hope. It fills us with hope. They may have questioned in their heart, what's going on here? And it's no different for us. Sometimes we question what's going on around about us and say, God, where are you when all this evil abounds? God, where are you when things seem like they are out of control? God's saying to them back then and saying to us today, I sit on the throne of power and I rule in holiness. And I rule in holiness. Yet at the same time, we can't comprehend many of God's ways and life is often mysterious around about us as we see evil go on. And often the circumstances of life do blind us to this. But this is why we need to come back and hear God's truth to realign our vision again and not to be overwhelmed by what's happening so we don't lose sight of this God who rules and reigns in heaven. God wants us to see that vision today, the same vision that John saw. It's recorded for us to see that, that he rules and he reigns. It is really hope-filled. When you know the end game, when you know the end game, it does fill you with confidence. When you don't know the end game, you've got no hope. But when you do know the end game, you've got confidence. If you're lost in a forest and you've got no supplies, you've got no map, you've got no way of getting out, you feel like you'll never get out of that thing. You'll be just trapped forever. But if you know the end game and the such as now I'm lost in this forest, but I've actually got the guide with me who's been through this forest already and he knows the way out, you've got total confidence no matter what you might face in that dark forest. When we know the end game here, the truth of what Revelation tells us, that God sits on the throne of power and holiness, we have confidence and we have hope to face the future. And just like that would have been for those people back in those churches back then. Just to change gears here, how is it that we can stand in this holy place where God is? We have these creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy. Uh, Ben read out Psalm 24 and it says that who shall stand in this holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who is this? Who can be that one that can be there? Who can possibly stand righteous in this complete and thorough holy judgment of this God that we serve? Who can do this? This is impossible for us. There's no human being alive who's ever lived as holy as God that could stand in God's presence and uh, bear his holiness. Impossible for us. We've failed in every possible and conceivable way to be holy. But there's an opening here for us, even in this chapter, as we see it. Look in verse 1. What does it say there? Jesus says there, Come up here, And I'll show you what must take place after this. This come up here is an invitation of grace. 
It really is an invitation of grace. Jesus is inviting John to come up here. Come up here and look in. Jesus has made this invitation to come up here because he first came down there, as into us. The only way that John could come up here to be with Christ is because Jesus first came down here to be with us. Jesus came down to be the living, eternal Word who became flesh. The Son of God who then became one of us to dwell amongst us, to make it possible for us to come up there and to be with Him. Jesus has suffered all the evil of our lives and He has suffered God's judgment upon Himself for that evil in our place when He came down here. And when He did that, He now offers us this opportunity to come up there with him through that grace. It says in Corinthians uh, 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the very reason we can now come up there, because Christ has made that possible for us. Here's how you or I stand today in the midst of evil. We need to look to what Jesus has already achieved for us by coming down and taking our place on the cross and we wait patiently for his rule to finally put an end to all evil. We know the end game. It fills us with hope and confidence. Alternatively, you might be really concerned about God's final judgment and you should be if you've never thought about it before. If you've never grasped what the gospel's about, about God's justice, you should be really concerned about God's judgment. Again, the only way that you'll ever come up there to be with Christ and to avert that judgment is by faith to receive what Jesus has done for us in taking that judgment upon himself and that we too can go up there and be with Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, let us thank God for Jesus who truly is in control, rules from a throne of power, rules from a throne of holiness and in that we can take great hope courage and confidence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you today as we come and as we think about uh, Revelation chapter 4. Lord, we thank you for this inspired writing. Lord, in some respects on first reading, it looks mysterious and it looks confusing. Uh, But I pray today you'll just begin to open up our eyes to the really big picture that's taking place here. And the big picture is, Lord, today that you are sitting on the throne. You sit and you rule on the throne of power and you rule in holiness. And God, we can gloriously trust you in that and we know that our hearts can be filled with hope no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through, no matter what is happening to us in all manner of evil, we know the end game. God, we know that our future is absolutely assured in Christ and is locked down. We cannot be removed from the safety of the salvation that you've called us into. So God, today I pray, please help us to take that vision that you've given to John and you now give to us. That we would uh, go forward in great confidence and uh, hope for the future. And Lord, we would do our utmost to reach those around about us here in the greatest shepherd and community or wherever you may be visiting from today with the truth that judgment is coming But God has made a way out of that judgment through his son Jesus. Father, we want to pray uh, that would be ingrained deeply in our hearts and minds today. And Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.
Pete's going to come now and uh, just take us around the... Uh, why don't you stand and join with us as we sing just one more song to finish off the service today. Uh, glory, we'll finish off with glory. <laughs> 